Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John. We are going to be in 1 John chapter 3 this morning. If you're wondering how exactly that plays in to the run-up to Daniel, it doesn't. Um, we are taking a detour uh, this morning. 1 John chapter 3. Um, next week we will finish our study of the introduction to the book of Daniel with a a lesson, a sermon on the southern kingdom, and then we will begin Daniel in earnest after that. Um, but this morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to begin by reading verses 10 through 23. 1 John 3 verses 10 through 23. Here's what it says. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren." But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. So that's our text for this morning. And uh, I want to have just a time of exposition. There'll be nine sections here that I'm going to move through briefly to summarize the text to make sure we're on the same track for uh, what this text is saying, and then three application points at the end. So very basic structure. There's a young man who met with me this week, and he said, how do I take notes? I would like to take notes. This is the perfect note-taking sermon. I'm telling you, nine points of exposition, three points of application. Boy, if you're taking notes this morning, this ought to be a piece of cake. I'm doing all the hard work for you. Uh, We are going to start looking at verse 10. Verse 10, first section here, is a transition. Now, we have not gone through the first uh, two and a half chapters of 1 John, but he is transitioning in verse 10. You'll notice it says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now the prior section was talking about practicing righteousness. Righteousness. The next section is talking about 
loving your brother the right way. And I think you probably caught some semblance of that as we read the text. This has to do with loving your brethren. The previous section on righteousness, so verse 10, is a transition. He is saying, okay, now that we have talked about sin... Now that we have talked about uh, uh, doing the right thing, now that we have talked about the imperative uh, to, to uh, fight sin in your life and to strive for righteousness, let's talk about this next important characteristic of a Christian, which is love for the brethren. Neither one of these can be discarded. There will be another one. as we as, If we were to move through First John, we would see others. But these two are in focus in chapter 3. So we, if you think of Christianity and you think, okay, being a Christian means I'm going to try not to sin, I'm going to fight against sin, that would be correct. Being a Christian does mean you are going to wrestle with sin. You'll fail, and that failure should be followed by repentance and more striving and more, I mean, this is a lifelong battle against the flesh and what I want, uh, the things that I'm attracted to, the desires that I have versus serving God with my life. Okay, so that's a lifelong battle. Um, but it is not superior to this battle of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ either. This also is important, and so verse 10 is a transition. Second point of exposition here, notice the from the beginning in uh, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Verse 11 says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We've transitioned, now we're talking about love. This is not a new thing. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning. Now, I think from the beginning has uh, two ideas behind it here. One is from the beginning when John first started to declare the gospel to them, when they first heard the gospel, whoever shared it with them. It hasn't changed. At the beginning when they were given the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they were told how to serve Jesus, when they were given the message of Jesus, it was a message about love. It was about Jesus' love for us. And it was a call that we should love our brothers. And that hasn't changed. Now, that's, that might not seem like a big you know, revelation to you, but you've got to think about the context here. John is writing 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For six decades, he has been pleading with people to, to come to Christ and to follow Christ. It is likely he is the only remaining living apostle, as he writes this in 1 John. The only remaining living apostle, the only one left who walked with Jesus, who heard from Jesus, who has declared Jesus from what he has seen and touched and witnessed and been in the presence of. He's it. When he says, this is the same messages from the beginning, he is fighting against new ideas. He is arguing against new thoughts. You know, people always like new things. You say, well, I don't know, you know, I I like things just the way they've always been. Okay, but most of us will have some attraction to new things. Most of us. Um, John is wrestling with that theologically. There are people with, you know, the last generation of believers, they thought this and they said this. Here's a new idea. Here are new things for the, the Christian church to consider. And John is saying no in his letter here. He's dealt with righteousness and sin, which hasn't changed. Now he deals with love, and he says, this is from the beginning. This hasn't changed. And it hasn't changed today. It's still the same. It, there's no repackaging it. There's no reassembling. There's no transmorphing it into something else. This call to love is from the beginning. He references Cain and Abel, which is the second meaning here. I don't think he, he means just from the beginning of when he shared the gospel, but I think he means from the beginning. 
like Cain and Abel goes back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 4. So his example of love is clear in these two brothers in that Abel was righteous and behaved righteously. Cain was evil and behaved evil. And he murdered his brother uh, Abel. This is from the beginning. This is important. It is fundamental. Someone might say, I thought that the big fundamental here was that we believed that Jesus was the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the grave. That's right. John covered that in chapter 1 of this letter. But if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God is bringing about certain things in your life that are undeniable. One of those is wrestling against sin. Another is love for the brothers. That's what he's saying. Uh, Also notice here, in Cain and Abel, both claimed a devotion to God. Cain and Abel both claimed a devotion to God. Cain was not some pagan whittling his own little wooden god in the backyard. He went to make an offering to God. He was mad when God rejected it. Like he claimed a devotion to God. You know, he wanted to be accepted by God. But his heart was wrong. He was evil. Um, How did that evil come out? He didn't love his brother. That's the point that John's making here. You see Cain's heart in Cain's life. You see what he believed, where his faith was in in what he did. Uh, Verses 13, so that was 1, 2, and 3. 1, transition. 2, notice from the beginning. 3, notice that you can claim a devotion to God and not love your brother. It's 4 in the exposition, verses 13 through 15. Let's just read them. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Opposite of love. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It doesn't mean that there is no one who's ever murdered someone that can't go to heaven. No, but the act of murder does not come from eternal life abiding within someone. Hatred doesn't come from eternal life abiding within someone. Love is what comes from the person who has the work of God prevalent in their heart and soul. Love is of God. Hatred. Here's the fourth one. Hatred is of the world. Love is of God. It's very simple. It's very simple. John is not sitting here talking like the Gnostics were in his day about deep, secret, mystical, mysterious, spiritual things. It's very simple. Hatred and animosity is from the world. So don't be surprised that the world hates you. doesn't mean everybody in the world is going to hate you, but we shouldn't be shocked by that. Love is of God. Fifth one, let's look at verses 16 and 17. By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's brothers. Now, when we see the word brethren and brothers there, we're talking about fellow Christians. We're talking about the church family. Are we supposed to love our neighbor? Yes. Are we supposed to love our enemies? Yes. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about brethren. We're talking about fellow believers. 
By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I would say verses 13 and 15 here, or verses 16 and 17 here, is theology and practice. Okay, we say that we believe that Jesus laid down his life, that's verse 16, for us. We believe the crucifixion, that's our theology. We believe that, that the Son of God, that God gave his only begotten Son, that that Son laid down his life for us. And in this we know love. We, we, we believe that, that's our theology. One practice of that theology that he follows with in verse 17 is that our love will be demonstrable in our taking care of the needs of other brothers in Christ. So this, verse 16 and 17, is just one example of theology and practice. What John is saying here is, believing the right thing is important. If you believe the right thing so that God's Spirit abides in you, so that eternal life abides in you, that's verse 15, no one who murders his brother has eternal life abiding in him. Well, if eternal life does abide in you, then your theology will come out in practice. It will show up. And here he picks an example. You know, this taking care of your brothers. Now, if it doesn't show up, does John condemn the person? Look at verse 17. Whoever sees this world sees uh, sorry, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart, how does the love of God abide in him? Is that condemnation from John? No. It's questioning, though. You see the question? How does the love of God abide in that person? John does not condemn the person who clings to their possessions when they see a brother in Christ in need, but he questions it because that's not what should flow from a heart that loves God and that has experienced God's love. So he asks, how does the love of God abide in him? You see the problem here. So, theology in practice. And there will certainly be times in our lives where our practice does not follow our theology. Does that mean you're going to hell? No, but it should certainly raise questions. Verses 18 and 19. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Assurance of salvation for the believer is when they see their faith in practice. That's, that's my sixth note here. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation comes when you see faith in practice. Well, I believe the right thing intellectually. How do I know that I'm saved? Well, do you see the Holy Spirit of God? The one who is the seal of our heavenly inheritance? Do you see God's Spirit working in your life? Do you see your faith and practice? That's a legitimate question. I, I've had people meet with me just in the last you know, several weeks and say, Look, I don't, I don't get this. How do I know that I'm saved? What's the relationship here between faith and works? And what I wish that I could do for people is just have like, you know, one of those scanners to shoot at their foreheads and be like, well, here, let me, let me get to my pastoral toolkit here and I'll fire it at you and it'll tell me, Christian or unbeliever, you know, uh, real or fraud. I don't have one of those. 
I don't have one of those. And if you're coming to me to say, hey, do you think I'm a Christian? I mean, <laughs> we're going to go through some basic questions here. What do you believe? What do you see in your life in terms of sin? What do you see in, in terms of righteousness? Here's what I see if you want my opinion, but I can't tell you whether or not your faith is fraudulent, but do you see the Holy Spirit of God in practice in your life? <laughs> do you see this? You know, well, John says here, my little children, and he is, he's talking to them because he cares for them. I mean, I can't go around calling people my little children, but if you're 90-some years old, and the last living apostle, you can get away with that. He cares about these people. They are like his little children. He says, my little children, let us not love in word or tongue. And I think we've all experienced that, right? Someone who just, yeah, I love you, I love you, I love you. There's nothing wrong with that, but he's saying, let's not let our love be defined by merely a profession here. But indeed, in action, in work, and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Assurance of salvation. Um, I was listening to a question and answer once with a, a pastor who I have a lot of respect for. And frankly, anyone who's willing to stand up and do a wide open, any topic question and answer is worth some kind of level of respect. Or, or uh, that's, that's pretty bold right, right there. And someone stood up and they said, is it normal for a Christian to wrestle with their salvation? And he had an answer that made a significant impact on my life because at the time, my early 20s, I was wrestling with my salvation. And here's what he said. He says, it's normal for a carnal Christian or for a worldly Christian to wrestle with their salvation. In other words, a Christian who's not living for Christ, but living like the rest of the world, that would be normal to question your salvation. But a Christian who is serving the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's the next point. Here's what John says to that person. Verse 20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Some people just have a guilt complex. Like they, they just, they struggle with this and they're like, you know, okay, well, I'm loving my brother. I'm trying to serve the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. But in my heart, I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure. And here's his comfort to them. God is greater than your heart. Okay. <laughs> God knows. God knows who his people are. You know, because that's just some people's natural inclination. Maybe that's you. To just constantly doubt, oh, but I, I sinned and I did this, or oh, but I, you know, and John is acknowledging those folks and saying, look, if you look at your salvation, you say, oh, I just, I don't know, I don't know, but yet you talk to a pastor and they're like, well, do you believe the correct, yes, that's what I believe. Are you serving the Lord? Yes, yes. Are you dealing with sin? No, and the pastor's like, I don't see why you should be wrestling with this. You need to trust God, but they go home and in the flesh, the heart is still worrying and wondering and worrying and wondering. He's, you know, he's saying here, you know, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than your heart. Your judgment's not greater than God's. You can, you can, you can have some peace here. But then he flips the coin to the other side. The people who for seemingly without any evaluation, think, yeah, I'm good. You know, <laughs> when there's you know, very little evidence of, of theology and practice, he says, but, but, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. If you're going to have confidence in your salvation, let it be not confidence in, in your flesh and how great of a person you are. If you're going to have confidence, let it be toward what God has done in your life. In other words, your confidence is in your faith in God. That's where 
a Christian's assurance of salvation comes from. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day of judgment. Against that day when I will open my eyes and meet him. You see, my confidence. So Paul's, or, or John here is not saying don't be confident, doubt your salvation. He's saying no, no, no. But if you're going to be confident, be confident towards the Lord. Let us not be in self-righteousness here. You know, you should look at the love of your brother here, at the good works, the theology and practice in your life, and you should recognize this is the Lord's doing and not mine. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians. That's what we read in Ephesians. We are His workmanship, created for good works in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, we are His hands and feet and body and so if we're going to have confidence if we're going to rejoice when we see our theology and practice and have assurance in the faith let it be not in our goodness but in what God is doing through us so verses 20 and 21 are to the uncertain believer and then to the confident believer that's 7 and 8 to the uncertain believer God is greater than our weak hearts to the confident believer be confident toward God because he works in us uh, and then verses 22 and 23, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. And we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has given us commandment. Which, you know, this is, this is pretty simple. This is echoed in James. The, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Like... Um, the Lord loves us, and when our lives are lived out in love and devotion to Him, we can be sure He will answer our prayer. I mean, some people think of prayer as, well, what's the point? You know, maybe something will happen, maybe something won't happen. That's faithlessness. You just throw that out. That's not Christianity. If we love God, and He is a Father who loves us, then we can pray with great confidence. And it says here, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing to Him. By the way, if we love God, our requests that we make towards God are going to be fueled by that love. I mean, you know, you're going to have to really convince me that your prayer request for a Ferrari is out of love and devotion to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, you know, He may answer that prayer with a resounding no. But if we love God, and if our heart is not on the things of this world, but on the things of His kingdom, He will work. He will work. Um, what is the commandment that God has given us? What are we supposed to be obedient to? Believe the gospel and love one another. So that's the exposition. If you didn't catch all nine of those, that's fine. Come see me afterward. I'll, if you really need it, I'll help number them out for you. But that's the exposition. That's the text. Three application points. Number one. There are absolutely times of testing of our faith. There are absolutely in our lives times when our faith is tested. That is absolutely true. Our faith is often tested. Abraham, we're told Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. And then just a few chapters later, he's told to go offer his son Isaac. That's after he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But then he was tested with his son Isaac. Isaac. Job was a faithful man. There was none like him in all the, the world. Uh, he was God's faithful servant and he was tested. 
The parable of the Good Samaritan is uh, Jesus' demonstration that we should all consider our faith in the middle of these kinds of tests. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it's, who's my neighbor? And he tells the story of the three people who walk by, the person in need, and only one of them helps. And he says, well, which one is that guy's neighbor? Well, it's the one who helps. And Jesus tells the questioning lawmaker, go and do thou likewise. You know, <laughs> you know, go, uh, that, you know, go love your neighbor. Go be the one that helps. So these are, these times of testing are important. You'll notice also, and this is, this is hard, Okay. But if you look at 1 John chapter 3, specifically the, the, the first part of what we read there in verses 10 and following, these are big contrasts. You know what a contrast is, right? Like black and white, big contrast. Black and dark gray, not much of a contrast there, right? But black and white, you see a big, a big contrast. Look at the contrast here in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil... You know, most of us are like, is there something in between this, these two, right? Like, can you just be like, you know, something that is short of those two categories, but not, not to John. Verse 14, those who abide in life and those who abide in death. Verse 15 is the abiding in life. Verse 14, abiding in death. These are huge contrasts, is the, in, in other words, what I'm saying. Like there's no middle ground for John. And you can look at that and you can say, why is there no middle ground? Is John cruel? Um, is he cruel? Is this, no, here is where I want to see you and here is where I want to see you. Is this judgmental? No, it's not cruelty. It is Clarity. One way of looking at strong contrast is to say, this leaves no ground for all of us somewhere in between. In this case, that's true. Another way of looking at people who have great, um, you know, contrasting views of things is they, they have great clarity. If you came up to me and, you, and someone, you know, let's say that, that a Mormon knocked on my door this afternoon. It's been a long time since a Mormon has knocked. They must have given up on me. I don't know. That, uh, a Mormon knocks on my door this afternoon and he starts telling me uh, about uh, his faith. Uh, to me, I'm going to have a very clear and fundamental answer to that. Because I'm, I'm cruel? no. Because I have clarity about this. I have clarity. I don't, need, you know, I don't need to see this in different shades of gray. I see it for what it is. John is pleading with us to have clarity about these things. Not to look at your Christian faith in the middle of these tests when our, when our faith is tested and see it on some sliding scale of gray and shades of different colors. Like, no... These tests are pass-fail. Either we respond faithfully or we don't. And if we don't respond faithfully to a test, it doesn't mean that we are automatically going to hell, but we should recognize it for what it is. It should cause us to ask questions, and you see the questions from John himself in verse 17 with one of these circumstances. Right? So there are big contrasts here. There's a lot at stake. Christians don't need to have ambiguity about what God wants from them it's clear God wants us to love the brethren. He wants us to love. Um, that's the first application point. There are times of testing, and it is clear how God wants us to respond to these tests. Second thing, 
Second application, love is more than benevolence. Now, when I say benevolence, I mean giving of this world's possessions to others. Love is more than that. Um, in this text, he uses benevolence as, as a test. If whoever has this world's possession sees his brother in need and doesn't give, that's the test he references in verse 17. But love, which is what he's calling us to, is more than that mere test. Okay, it's more than benevolence. Um, you're not loving just because you are benevolent, but that's what he chooses here. Um, what is love? Well, you could turn to 1 Corinthians 13, but I'll give you the summary if you don't, if you don't want to turn there. Uh, and be, listen to me now. This is not random wedding theology here in 1 Corinthians 13. Okay? This is not... Well, God did not give us 1 Corinthians 13 to, because it looks good on a sign in the hallway. All right? These are ways that our love is tested. So you think through these. Don't discount this part. I'm going to be brief. I, mean, I don't have time to preach a sermon on every one of these. I did if you go back to the sermon archive we went through 1 Corinthians. I don't think anybody's going to spend their afternoon doing that. But, but, but this is important. Love is kind. Are you kind? And by the way, all of these are in the context in 1 Corinthians 13 in the body of Christ in the local church. 1 Corinthians 13 is following 1 Corinthians 12, which is talking about how believers should use the spiritual gifts of God in the local church. So you know, it talks about a lot of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, and then he says, but the greatest gift is love. Let me tell you how to use love in your local church. Not that we shouldn't love elsewhere, but I think you need to be thinking about this test in terms of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is kind. It's kind. Are you kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you kind to them? Love is patient. Um, are you patient with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Love bears all things. Love doesn't get bitter. Love, love bears all things. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are sinners. They are going to do things that you are going to have to bear with. Love bears those things. Love believes all things. Not all doctrines and theologies. This is talking about loving your brothers and sisters in the local church. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not distrusting. It's, it's not always saying, yeah, I know you're saying this, but this is what I think you're really doing, or you're really meaning, or you're really saying. Nope. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. In the Lord. Love hopes. Love looks hopefully towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love doesn't write them off. Well, you know. Yeah, it'd be nice if that happened, but I don't think it's going to. Statistics show. <laughs> love for the brethren hopes all things. You want to go around and see how many alcoholics and drug addicts are in this room? I'm not interested in your statistics. Love hopes all things. Um, love endures. It endures all things, and then at the end of the love chapter, love never fails. Both saying the same thing. It doesn't stop. Well, I've loved you to this point, and this is where I get off the train. <laughs> you know? <laughs> fool me once, shame on me, but fool me for the tenth time, and I don't love you anymore. That's not, that's not what Jesus tells Peter. Love never fails. It endures. What isn't love? 
Envy is not love. I wish I had what that person had. That would be really nice if I could get to that. that I wish I was there. Boasting is not love. Um, look at me. I did it. Look at, my, look, at, uh, you know, look at what I have. Look at my children. Look at my family. Look at here. Look at like that. Boasting is not love. Pride is not love. Um, being rude. Love is not rude. Being selfish. Love is not selfish. Love is not provoked. Love does not get ticked off easily. Love doesn't get defensive easily. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil, doesn't go around assuming evil on other people's behalf. Oh, this is what they're doing. This is what they're thinking. This is going on. There's a fine line between loving someone enough to carefully warn them about sin and to thinking they must be in sin. You cross that line, it's not love. Love does not rejoice in, in sin. And if we're told at the beginning that love endures in the positive sense, in the end we're told love does not fail, which is the same thing. It doesn't stop. So this is the example in, the, in 1 John chapter 3, but it is not the only example of love. This is just the example he's using to demonstrate that we are put to the test in our faith. And the Christian, when put to the test, loves his brothers and sisters, loves her brother and sisters in Christ. Um, Jesus made this a defining quality for his people. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That's a defining quality. Um, by this, and I dare say he's right, because that's a challenging thing to do. That's a distinguishing characteristic. Okay. So first application point. There are tests of the Christian faith, and there are pass-fails to those tests. Okay. Second application point. Love is more than purely benevolence, which we see here as the example. The third one and the final one, John zeroes in on material goods here for a reason. John zeroes in on this as an example for a reason. And we would be missing the point to miss that. John knew Jesus. Now, I know Jesus from God's Word. John knew. <laughs> he knew Jesus. He knew what he looked like. He knew what he ate. He knew how he acted after a hard day. Like, he knew the work ethic of Christ. John knew Jesus. And Jesus deals a ton with material possessions. Just a ton. I mean, more than seems reasonably tolerable. He deals with possessions. This is not by accident that John is picking an example like this. You almost cannot go through the teaching of Jesus without running into this at every other page. There's this one section in Matthew 6 where Jesus is talking about material possessions and it's don't store up for yourselves treasures on, on earth but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because treasures on earth don't last. They get, they get burned up 
or they get stolen, or they rot away, or you die and you leave them to someone else, but treasures on heaven, in heaven do last. That's after the section in the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about you cannot serve God and money, and it's before Matthew chapter 8 where he's talking about the Son of Man. You want to follow me? And he starts talking about birds and foxes. You know, the, the birds have nests and foxes have dens. I don't even have a place to lay my head, so come follow me. Jesus talked about material possessions all the time. In his parables, and in his interactions, here's this, this, this uh, wealthy young ruler who wants to know, how do I follow Jesus? And Jesus says, you know the law. And the man says, yes, but what must I do to be perfect? Jesus says, if you'll be perfect, go deal with all your material possessions. So there's a reason John zeroes in on this. Because oftentimes, not always, for some of us, the rubber meets the road when it comes to whether or not we love people on whether or not we're willing to trust people anymore when they've wronged us. For some of us, that's how we're wired. Whether or not we're going to be bitter about things that have happened in our lives. Whether or not we're going to be kind. Whether or not we're going to be patient. Whether or not we're going to be rude and be okay with that. Like, for some people, the rubber meets the road in a different way. But for most people... One of the ways where love is truly put to the test is in what you do with your stuff. But the message from God's Word is that none of it is your stuff. The language from God is we are servants, stewards, managers of His stuff. And that's tough. That is really hard because I've worked hard for my stuff. Or so I think. And I have worked hard. And many of you have worked hard. If not all of you have worked hard for what you have. But what if what you have is not yours? What if what you have is His? And what if He will hold you accountable for what you do with what you have, which is His? And these are where all the parables of Jesus come in. Like a, a master of a house who goes away and leaves his possessions in the charge of stewards and managers. This is where this comes in. <laughs> years ago, when I was ignorant, more ignorant than I am now, but years ago when I was truly at a loss for what to do with my life, I got to a point where I had a house that was paid off and I didn't have any debt and I had a pretty good job. And I started thinking, what now? And I thought, well, maybe with all these little kids, maybe I should start like, you know, storing up canned foods and things like that for in case something bad happens. But I still have canned foods, by the way. So I'm not condemning anybody who's storing up food. But my point is, here's the challenge of that. I got to thinking, so let me get this straight. The apocalypse comes and I have my stocked pantry of canned goods and I'm just going to watch all of my brothers and sisters in Christ starve uh, while we, you know, measure them out week after week after week. And I'm like, I don't think that aligns with what I'm reading here about any of you who have the world's possessions and sees your brother in need. Uh, like, I, you know, I, I'll have to store a lot of canned foods to be able to survive the zombie apocalypse for all of you. I mean, that's, that's going to be a lot. I need a big bunker full of canned foods because the moment hungry people start showing up at my door, I've got a choice. Is hell worth this? <laughs> uh, <laughs> is my salvation worth getting those extra six meals? 
Am I willing to fail test after test after test so that I can survive a little longer? Uh, No way. I praise the Lord for that. Now, like I said, I I still have a pantry with some canned foods. But if you're hungry, you can come over to my house and have them. That should be the Christian response to every believer in need. That's what I called and told Scott last night. You know, I said, whatever I have is yours. Whatever I have is yours. Because I have failed tests like that in the past. And I'm not going to fail them anymore. So, let's love the brothers. Not merely in benevolence, but certainly included there. Let's have a word of prayer and our ushers will come forward. Father, I love you. I am not a perfect man. There are no perfect men here. But we are your children. We thank you for your children. We pray that you will make us into the men and women that you've called us to be. We pray for the Raiders and for all those who are suffering that we will be faithful to bear one another's burdens and to love each other as you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.